HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Thanks for joining us on this hour of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, we will meet a trio of craft spirit makers that are as unique as the drinks they produce. Nick Nagley brings us to Whiskey Acres, an Illinois-based farm that harvests grain and, as the name suggests, makes it into whiskey. We will travel from Illinois to Michigan to visit with Michael Garrett, who is bringing craft spirits to the beer town of Lansing. But now, let's welcome our first guest, Rick Schneider, founder of Isanti Spirits in Minnesota, whose punk rock ethos is shaking up the craft distilling scene. Well, Rick, we're really happy to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. And, you know, I had an opportunity to speak with you a couple weeks ago, uh, get a little bit of your backstory, and learn that you are a man of many talents. You're a musician, you're an artist, you're an educator. And now, most recently, you're a spirits maker. So given that, you know, uh, great, uh, I guess, jack-of-all-trades background you have, uh, tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you're at. Um, give us the Cliff Notes version of your journey. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll do that as best I can. And, you know, th- thanks for having me. Being out in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota, I don't I don't get a lot of attention. So I'm, I'm excited to do this. So, you know, my background, I, I grew up in southern Minnesota and in, in Rochester. My parents both worked for IBM there. And, uh, you know, they grew up in a Great Depression era. After their parents lived through the Great Depression, and so they were told to get good jobs that would, you know, be make them secure. And in doing so, they became the exact opposite as parents and told us to do whatever we wanted, that we should try to follow our dreams, because I think in some ways they didn't get to. Um, and so when I wanted to learn how to play drums, uh, I earned half the money by working and mowing lawns to buy a drum set, and they paid for the other half. And my band practiced in my bedroom. My parents were like, as long as you're done at eight o'clock, you go ahead. So right right away, being a teenager, uh, I got into a band with a couple of great guys, Mark DeCoot and Ben Woolman, who still live here in Minneapolis. And we 
formed a band which became known as Watercolor Sky, and we started writing our own material with 15, 16 years old. We were writing our own stuff and and playing. And, you know, we, we played First Avenue or the 7th Street Entry uh, at, at the famous First Avenue Club when we were yeah. 17 years old. And, you know, we, we grew up in the punk rock era. It was the replacements, Husker Du, the Minutemen. Like, it was what do what you want to do, screw authority, don't follow rules. You know, we, we accepted everybody. And uh, that whole thing has just sort of led me down my path. And although the band ended up breaking up when some guys wanted to go to college and I went to the Berkeley College of Music in Boston and was there for about a year and a half. Which is a very big deal. It was. It was a very big deal. And I was very excited, but I, I just didn't fit in there. And so I I was looking for something else, and I'd always thought about being a history teacher. So I went to the University of Wisconsin, which transferred a lot of credits, and a lot of my friends from Minnesota were there. So it seemed like a good place for me, a little more liberal town, um, and uh, started doing history. And by the end of my history degree, you know, I was always trying to take interesting classes for electives. And I was looking in the art department to take a class in photography because I had a camera with all the lenses back when that was a thing. Everybody carried yep. those. And uh, and and I wanted to learn how to use it. But photography had too many things and uh, glass blowing didn't or neon. I could I could do a neon and there weren't many requirements for that. So I went and talked to the professor and started doing that and really enjoyed it. Bending neon tubes, turning that into art with light. And at the end of the summer class that I took, he told me that there was a going to be a class in the fall and he'd love it if I would take it. I was getting ready to graduate with a degree right. in history and move on. But I was like, I'll, I'll, t- I'll take the class. I mean, if I can do it, pass, fail. And I walked in and as I, we were, as I was walking in to do the neon class, there was this glass blowing studio and it had always been there. But if a glass blowing studio isn't on and you don't know what it is, for all you know, they're water heaters. You know, you have no idea. So I, <laughs> we would walk by it every day. Well, now the fire's burning, the furnaces are glowing, they're, you know, students, you know, pulling glass out and making stuff out of it. And I was like, I want to do that. And, uh, and he didn't, he wasn't really teaching a beginning class. And he said, well, if those guys want to teach you, go ahead. So I just kind of jumped in and, and learned with a trial by fire. And I, I loved it. I lived in that studio. I would, I would go to work at 8 a.m. at 5 a.m., make pizza dough at a pizza place. And, uh, and then as soon as I was done with the lunch rush, I'd be in the glass studio till midnight and it just grabbed my attention. So, and then from there, if I if I if my memory serves me correctly, you ended up being a, an an art educator, right? Yeah, yeah. We I I stayed all the way through getting a master of fine arts, and then I I uh, went on to be a teacher. I mean, I was kind of always teaching. Like I was teaching drums when I was a kid to other kids and and things like that. And I was teaching other students in the glass program by the time I was a grad student. So I got my first job at VCU out in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, then I taught, or I, I should say, I taught a little bit at Madison, then went to VCU. Uh, then I got a teaching position in Maryland at Salisbury University, was there for about five years. And I should say, I met my wife in grad school, who is also an art professor, and she's sort of a big part of the business, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and so we right. were, so I was teaching that. Um, and then we took a job in, in uh, Mobile, Alabama, which ended up, you know, it's not really a good place for us for being from the Midwest. My wife's from Nebraska, but she spent a lot of time in Minnesota vacationing. And um, it's just a totally different country down there. Yeah, it is. And yeah, just, it is. Again, 
didn't didn't feel like we fit in and we're looking for something else to do. And, you know, when you're a college professor teaching glass blowing, there aren't a lot of jobs. There are about 40 jobs in the whole country. And I know most of the people who are in it. And if you don't have a job to go to, you're looking for something else. And I wasn't really looking for a job in distilling when one day I just, you know, was sitting in front of my computer with a glass of Maker's Mark and punched how to make whiskey into Google. And I'd had a longstanding <laughs> interest. I mean, I grew up in a whiskey drinking family. My Dad, my grandpa uh, mostly drank Canadian whiskeys, Crown Royal, uh, Canadian yeah. Club, Windsor. Um, I, I feel like those, that's the those, calling. Uh, Crown Royal is the calling card of Midwest of, of Midwestern men. I, I, I just in my experience because yeah. it's very popular amongst most guys I know and, and my dad, and it's just one of those things. Well, those Canadian whiskeys flooded across the border after Prohibition, and that's so right. it was what everybody had been drinking, and they just kept drinking it here. Um, but so that, so, you know, I, I, I'd always had an interest in it, but I don't have any moonshiners in my family and you can't go ask people, Hey, you got an uncle in the woods? Cause they're going <laughs> to say no, even if they do, the answer is no. And, uh, so, um, I, I just punched it into Google and the beginnings of the industry were just getting going back. This was like 2010. Um, there were maybe 150 small distilleries in the whole country and they're, I think well over 2000 now. So it was really exciting and fun and looked like something I wanted to do. So I just uh, I just jumped right in and started doing a bunch of research. And after a couple of months, I was like, I could totally do this. I want to do this. So I pulled my wife aside and said, you know, hey, what would you do if I said I want to quit teaching and open a whiskey distillery? And I have the best wife in the world because her answer was just like, you know, if we're not going to do that, this, that would be pretty darn cool. So we, uh, she, with her blessing, I started doing the research on it. We researched throughout 2011. The end of 2011, I was ready to quit teaching. So I resigned my position. She kept her job because she had a salary and benefits. And uh, I started pursuing it very seriously. And then in terms of like how I, how I learned to do it, you know, I yeah, got connected with Yeah, I was just, just going to ask the question Fly. because you've been a, you've been an educator, a teacher all this time. Like you said, all the way back to when you were a kid teaching drums. Now all of a sudden the tables are turned, right? And you have to learn, uh, you know, a whole new craft, uh, literally and figuratively, um, you know, in, in yeah. learning the, the distillery process and, and how to make, uh, you know, craft spirits. And I know that was a whole, you know, uh, journey in and of itself, trying to identify people that would help you learn, people that you could uh, almost apprentice with. Um, what was that process like for you? Well, it, it, you know, it really was, I, I got connected to people online talking to forums because in Alabama, there was no industry. It had a big zero mm -hmm. in the number of craft distilleries when I was there. Uh, and I was looking at this place called the American Distilling Institute's website, and they have a forum there. And at the time, uh, Don Pfaffenroth, who's the main owner of Dry Fly Distilling, would spend a lot of time on there answering people's questions. And I just called him up because I saw on their website they had a distilling school. And he talked to me for like three hours one day, like answered every question I had, was like, here's how to get going. And at the end of the conversation, he was like, look, you seem like somebody we would like to help out. And if you, when you get serious, if you want to come out, come take our program. So as I got serious, that was my first choice. So I committed to going out there in um, March of 2012, end of March. And right before that, I mean, I'd already quit my teaching job. And then this job here at the Anoka Ramsey Community College in near Minneapolis came up. They had a glass blowing position. So I applied for that, interviewed for it like the week before I flew out to dry fly, flew out to dry fly, did my class, 
flew home and I wasn't even home two days and I got the call that I got hired to come to Minnesota. So So you're packing your bags and heading back to the Midwest. Yeah, like my wife quit her job the instant she knew I got the job here, you know, like at the end of the semester. And so the summer of 2012, we moved up here. Uh, We moved into a suburb of the Twin Cities near the school and started thinking about where we wanted to do this. And there were a lot of other distilleries in Minnesota already planning to open in the Twin Cities, which is probably, you know, in hindsight, I probably would be doing financially way better if I had done that. But it's a lot of competition. You also have to run a cocktail room really late. And I want to make whiskey. I'm a maker of things and a learner of stuff. And that's really what I want to do. So my wife and I started talking about it and said, well, let's move a little north because I I grew up fishing north of the Twin Cities. Her family had a cabin in this town called Brainerd, which is actually where the movie Fargo was centered around. Mm -hmm. Um, She she had a cabin up there and it turned out we fished on the same lake, uh, Pelican Lake near Brainerd. And uh, so we started talking about moving a little north of the city so we would be closer to that. So when we raised our kids, we could take them to places uh, a little easier. And we looked all over. And the very first place we really looked at um, was Isani County, Minnesota. And uh, we found this really great little property. It's 11 acres. It's on a lake. It's like all woods. It's in the middle of farm country. Um, and, uh, we didn't know it at the time when we were looking at it, but this was the last dry County in Minnesota. That's obviously the perfect place to open up, you know, making booze, right? The the last dry County obviously is, is the pick, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, you know, I I didn't pick it that with that in mind, you know, but it definitely (laughs) fits the rebellious punk rock nature to go mess with somebody who, but, uh, you know, this county was settled by Baptists and they controlled the politics of this region well into the 1960s. Uh, And there's still a big influence here. This is one of the most conservative voting counties in the state of Minnesota. But, um, and all of our friends told us, you know, they're never going to let you do that in that county. Like they don't want you to drink, much less build a booze factory in your backyard. And um, so we we walked away from this property and looked at a bunch of other counties. And then we, uh, all of them said no. And we were finally like, well, we really like that farm. Let's go back to Isani and see what they say. And it actually turned out to be the only county that said yes. And they were like, yeah, we'll help you do that. That sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, a year later, I started building everything. I mean, we had to do a couple of things most distilleries don't have to do. We had to legally separate our land. You're not allowed to right. operate a distillery on a property with a residence. So that took a while, about a year. Uh, we had to, the county required we create an ordinance that allows us to exist which took about a year. Uh, but now because of me, the last dry county in Minnesota is, I believe, the only county that allows you to operate a distillery on an ag residential property by ordinance. Um, and we made that possible for breweries and wineries all at the same time. That is awesome. You really are breaking so, that's barriers. That's a moral victory. <laughs> you're, you're, you're definitely bringing your punk rock ethos uh, to to making spirits and to making ordinances uh, up up in, uh, Minnesota, yeah. in northern Minnesota. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your actual product. What exactly do you okay. make and and where do you source your ingredients from? So my my primary whiskey is called Isani Rye Whiskey. Like I got into this to make rye whiskey because I grew up drinking those Canadian whiskeys that are predominantly rye based. Like I like that spicier side of whiskey. 
Um, so uh, I source my rye comes from a farm about 15 miles away. In fact, the guy who surveyed our land, Dale Anderson, when we separated it for the county, he's a fourth generation farmer. His dad or his great great grandfather bought their land from the railroad in like 18 in the 1880s, and he's wow. they've farmed it ever since. So uh, he's been here a long time. So he grows uh, that rye for me. Um, then I also make a bourbon called Sunken Bobber Bourbon. I mean, we wanted to do something fishing related uh, since that's a big part of Minnesota's culture. And, you know, when the bobber goes down, the fun starts. So uh, so that one, we get a corn called Minnesota 13, which was developed by the University of Minnesota in 1897. It was the first corn that could grow in 90 days, which is what it needed to do to grow in Minnesota's climate. Um, Interesting. And we a lot of distilleries are using it for its history, but um, you know it it was used in this county called Stearns County, which is two counties to the west of me in an area around a town called Saint Cloud, Holdingford, and Avon, um, to make Prohibition era spirit uh, called Minnesota Thirteen, which was a corn liquor, uh, corn whiskey. That and uh, you know it was it was crazy how many people were making it over there. They, they estimate there were over 1,200 distilling operations in that county during Prohibition. And the biggest one was in a place called St. John's University run by the Catholic monks who taught mm-hmm. everybody how to do it. So, so you can't not use that corn. Um, and and that, that county was all was 95% German Catholic, and I grew up German Catholic. I mean, I don't know right. that I like, have any like relatives many folks in that in county. That so, yeah, so I don't market with it, but I, I love telling their story. It's a great story. If you ever come take a tour, come to Minnesota, come see me. I tell you a much longer, better story. On well, the tour. I think everybody needs to come and visit you and experience this for sure. I definitely want to get up there as soon as it's a little bit safer to travel for sure. Yeah, but so Dale grows 90% of the grain that I use. And then the other uh, 10% come from a little malt company in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota called Malt Works, which is about uh, 100 miles north of me. Um, so I get a hundred percent of my grain from right here in Minnesota. And then my gin, which is called tilted cedars gin, uh, I make with a red cedar juniper that grows right in my front yard. Uh, oh, wow. the, the red cedar is actually a juniper tree and there are 34 of them that line the front yard. And I didn't know they were here when we bought the property. Somebody told me about them and I knew that that tree could be used for gin. So it buries... It buries in the summer and the they mature sometime around late October and around the first freeze when they turn from this teal to a purple, you pick them. And uh, so that I have a really unique gin. I don't know anybody else in the country who is doing that. If anybody out there is, call me up and let me know. I'd love to know what somebody else is doing with it. But I've searched it and searched it. And as far as I know, my gin is the only gin currently in the United States, if not the world, that uses the red cedar juniper that's indigenous to this area. Breaking barriers, breaking rules, and uh, being first yet again. I'm trying. <laughs> Which is pretty, pretty impressive. Punk, punk rock to the core. That's that's right. <laughs> so I, you know, I just want to kind of finish up because you know, obviously, the the whole world has been struggling through the the COVID pandemic, and while people are drinking a lot of booze, a lot of folks that have distilleries or you know have tasting rooms or uh, farm tours that sort of thing have taken a hit. Um, you know, how have things been through this process for you and? Um, what do you? What, what's next for for your punk rock soul of spirits? You know, we're 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 hanging tough here, me, me and the family. I mean, it's I, I have a benefit of being a one person operation, so we're you know, and I have a job, so we're like I said, we're making it through this pretty well. Um, 
you know, we're just going to try to get this cocktail room open in a reasonable amount of time if we don't keep getting shut down. And hopefully the glass blowing studio is going to be something that excites people and gets them to come out and see what we're doing and, and, and experience that. And, um, I, Still playing a band. I'm still blowing glass. I'm still making whiskey. I'm learning new things all the time. Who knows what's really next? And the next big plan, you know, as soon as we start poured the floor for this building, I'm already thinking about the next one, which I'd really like to build like a traditional round barn with a rectangular space down the middle for like weddings and uh, events with the whiskey barrels racked in the round or out all the way around them. Like that's like the next big plan. Uh, so hopefully the cocktail room flies and we earn enough money that I can do that. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> well, so far following your dreams has worked for you. Um, and you've been a quick study pretty much on everything that you've done. Um, and you know, I certainly want to go out and see a glass blowing studio slash, cocktail yes. room slash distillery. Um, so I'm going to definitely have to make the trip out. And uh, I can't wait to see what you do next, next for sure, because I can only imagine that the sky's the limit for you. Rick, thank you so much for joining uh, us today on Heritage Radio. This is Eat Your Heartland Out. We'll be right back after a quick break. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I'm able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. Now we're joined by... Nick Nagley, one of the co-founders of Whiskey Acres in Illinois. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. We're happy to have you on the show. It's my pleasure to be on with you guys today on this snowy winter day, but it's a lot of fun to take a break and, and talk about whiskey. <laughs> well, in the Midwest, it, it's no matter what, it's always snowing and whiskey keeps you warm. So tell us a little bit about Whiskey Acres, um, you know, and learning a little bit about uh, the operation. Uh, I think it's unique because it literally is a farm-to-bottle operation. So how did you get started at Whiskey Acres? Well, so, so Whiskey Acres is unique, and, and you call it farm-to-bottle. Uh, we call it seed-to-spirit. Aha. Uh-huh. And, and it's, a, it's a designation that we make because, you know, we literally control the process of, of whiskey from the seed that we put into the ground to the spirit that we put in the bottle. So I'm one of three co-founders. I have two business partners, Jim and Jamie Walter, and we actually built a distillery on their family farm over in DeKalb, Illinois, which is about 60 miles west of Chicago. Um, they're fourth and fifth generation farmers. Uh, my family has a, a separate farm about 100 miles south of us, and which makes me a fifth generation farmer when I'm, I'm helping my mm-hmm. father. And, and so Whiskey Acres for us is, is really about showcasing what we as farmers do through a bottle of whiskey. It's a way for us to get a little closer to the consumer, to really highlight the high quality products and, and uh, grain products that we grow here 
and and create a platform for us to have a dialogue with our friends from the city and the suburbs over what we're doing on the farm and and what we can do better what we're already doing as good as we can and and to really just be an open book for that seed to spirit process that's awesome definitely motivating me to to want to jump on interstate 80 and drive west uh, from where i'm at in ohio to check out whiskey acres um because it is so different uh and and the fact that you know you and and your partners all have generations of agricultural experience how is that informed um, you know, sort of your approach of bringing together that agricultural expertise with distilling knowledge, because most of the time, as, as you well know, you really, you know, most places don't have this seed to spirit kind of uh, mentality as as they're producing, uh, uh, you know, booze <laughs> for a real technical term. <laughs> so, I mean, just from a, a final product standpoint, having the ability to to truly segregate the cream of the crop uh, to make the best whiskey from the best grain. The literal cream of the, the literal crop. The literal <laughs> cream of the literal crop. You know, so, so it's not only are we able to select the best, but we're able to, from the very beginning, decide and make planting decisions based off of what will create the best and highest quality grain. You know, if I put my farmer hat on for a moment, the Please way that, that farmers make a living is by growing the most bushels per acre and selling mm-hmm. those bushels at the highest given market price. Um, and so when you're making planting decisions, it's not about having the highest quality grain. It's about having the most grain that meets a minimum commodity standard. Mm. Take your farmer hat off for a moment and put on your distiller hat. You can, uh, you can be very much less concerned about quantity and focus far more on quality, whether it's test weight or natural drying ability, disease resistance, starch content versus protein content, Mm -hmm. those things that you cannot identify, you cannot segregate, and you cannot plan for if you're buying commoditized, homogenized grain from somebody else. Interesting. So it really gives us the ability to to be um, consistent and high quality in, in kind of our standard offerings and then allows us to kind of create some goofball things, some things that have never really been done before because we can plant it and, and, and kind of let the, the farm swallow a little bit of the cost so the distillery can be profitable mm-hmm. because there's things that we can grow that we could not buy, that other distilleries cannot buy and be profitable on. So I got to ask, like what? Like what? You you mm-hmm. open this you open this can of worms. What goofball things are you doing, and and what kind of things can you gr- that you're growing that you couldn't necessarily buy? So so for instance, last week we uh, or last weekend we sold through a product that we call our blue popcorn bourbon. It's part of our artisan series. So instead of growing a standard yellow dent variety, we grew literally blue popcorn. You could put it in the microwave or pop it. And pop it, or in our case, we uh, we put it in a mash tun and, and cook it to to eventually distill. Is this similar to like I you know the blue corn tortilla chips no. kind of scenario? Well, I mean it's similar in that the color is similar, but I'm talking about popcorn. The blue corn tortilla chips is a a type of yellow uh, is a type of um, dent corn. I see. So um, so you know it's it's like yellow dent corn is not the same as as popcorn. Um, whereas blue dent corn is not the same as blue popcorn. Well, I, I'm I'm learning, and I'm sure my <laughs> listeners are as well. <laughs> you know, so, some other fun ones that we do in, in the artisan series. Uh, we've got a um, a bloody butcher. So bloody butcher is this uh, heirloom varietal that was developed in the 1920s. The kernels are blood red. Uh, we've got another one called Oaxacan green that uh, the the seed was sourced out of the Oaxacan region of Mexico, and mm-hmm. you guessed it, the kernels are green. 
And then uh, just, I think last week or the week before, we were distilling something called Cox Prolific. And this is kind of a fun story. <laughs> this, this particular uh, variety, it's an heirloom variety that, that we had shipped to us directly from the Monticello Estate. And, and this was um, an heirloom in Virginia? variety. In, in Virginia? In Virginia, from Thomas Jefferson's estate. And General Cox was one of uh, Jefferson's best friends. And, and he had developed this, this um, heirloom seed called Cox Prolific. And, uh, and it was used in that area quite a bit, really up until World War II. And uh, then, you know, hybridization came along and, and the use of those sort of heirloom things kind of went away because they just, they weren't profitable and functional. Um, a couple of years ago, it was discovered that uh, this farmer had, and, and it's, I'll just simplify it, in the neighborhood had continued growing this supply, you know, a little bit of this for some time. And the Monticello estate got the seed back. Uh, I found out about it. We reached out to them. They gave us a little bit of the supply and, and, and we grew enough to make a batch of it. And, and so it'll be a few years, but uh, Cox Prolific from um, Monticello Estate is sitting in a barrel right now to be drank someday soon. Wow, that's, that's awesome. How do you decide or discern what kind of, you know, unique, strange things, whether it's blue popcorn or Cox Prolific? I mean, how do you decide, you know, how do you go on those, you know, sort of scavenger hunts to identify heirloom seeds or different types of things that you want to grow and then distill? I mean, there's a lot of things you have to consider. Uh, the, the first and most important is just growing conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, to be very honest with you, that Cox Prolific was, was bred and, and developed in, at, in, at the Monticello Estate, which is a very, very different, different, very different yeah. than DeKalb, Illinois. And, and so, you know, the, the reason we only have a barrel is because it was not the, the most high-yielding grain or corn that we grow here uh, because, you know, we have a lot of different diseases and climate changes and... Honestly, this this October, or I should say, this August was one of the driest Augusts we've had in a mm -hmm. long time, and so that that corn did not uh, was not prolific for us, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> not truth in advertising, General right, Cox. Right. And then uh, you know, so can we grow it? Can we grow it well? And then the other one is, has somebody else done it before? Right. You know, that's that's why we went with uh, blue popcorn. You know, I'll give you just a little bit of a backstory here, please. In twenty. 11, 2012, uh, Jamie, my business partner, approached me and, and came up, you know, presented the idea of, of opening the distillery. And, um, you know, to make a long story short, we decided to move forward with it. We took lots of classes. We, um, we read the books. But at the end of the day, we're, we're three farmers who'd never made a drop of whiskey before in our lives. Mm -hmm. Pretty substantial liability when you're opening up a distillery that, you know, the startup costs are, are very, are, are not insignificant. So we, uh, we reached out to and eventually had the privilege of working with a gentleman by the name of Dave Pickerel. Uh -huh. Dave, if, you, if you're in the whiskey industry, used to be the master distiller at Maker's Mark. He left there uh, in the 2000s to, I like to say, help knuckleheads like us transition from being aspirational to functional distillers. He helped us guide the way through the bureaucratic process to help us source equipment to really ground truth our, sure. our business plan and, and ultimately kind of taught us the 100, 200, 300 level coursework of distilling. And I'll tell you, you're not alone in this. I mean, in, in talking to folks, whether it's distilling or cider making or mead, and talking to so many folks at making this series of, of episodes for, for this season, the, the almost apprenticeship slash mentorship programs that go on, the, these sort of informal relationships really have made the world go round, just as you're describing, um, trying to make people from sort of, you know, conceptual to functional 
in one yeah. way, shape, or form. And, and, it's awesome. You know, well, I will mention, you know, rest in peace, Dave. He passed away about two years ago, oh. and and his, you know, I say this a little bit tongue in cheek, but his his spirit truly lives on in, in everything <laughs> that we do. Um, but but just to make this relevant regarding our, our our blue popcorn is, I was on the phone with Dave one day. Um, Dave, you know, I, I'd done something right or done something wrong, and I was trying to figure out how to repeat it or not do it again. And uh, a buddy of mine who raises blue popcorn, you know, had one of those call waiting moments. And, and I had the light bulb of ideas that Dave, how do you make bourbon from popcorn? He just kind of laughed and said, I don't believe it's ever been done before. So to get back to your original question, has it been done before? Something like blue popcorn never been touched. So how can we carve out a niche? How can we truly create something unique and, and different and, and have something that's relatable? And, you know, blue popcorn is something that people can really kind of gravitate to and understand and, and, have a sip and have a popcorn at the same time too. It's, it's really kind of a cool process. Well, so since this is audio, you know, this is, you know, this is the, the magic of radio, so to speak. And, uh, you know, we, we need our, our imagination to wander. Can you describe just cause I, I'm personally curious and I'm sure listeners are as well. What, if we were to hold a glass of blue popcorn in our hand, what, what would it be blue and what would we taste? How, what are the, the flavor notes coming out of that? So I think the, the most important thing to, you know, imagine in your left hand, you're holding a, a big uh, yellow ear of, of yellow dent corn. You know, it's, it's very girthy and they're long and they're, you know, dented kernels and, um, you know, probably weighs a couple pounds. In your right hand, you've got a much slimmer, a long, shimmering, shining, deep purple, blue colored, um, popcorn ear. And, and so all those, those, uh, the tannins that are in the, the skin of that uh, popcorn, the difference in starch composition, all of those things, by, by the way, when you, when you, um, cook a, a mash of blue popcorn, the mash is almost the color of Pepto-Bismol. It turns this like bright, pink? beautiful pink color. It's wow. really kind of strange. But then when you take that, that mash and you, uh, you distill it, it does not matter what you distill. Everything that's distilled is clear. And so that, that clear distillate, whether it's blue popcorn or standard bourbon or rye whiskey or whatever, all that clear alcohol goes into a charred new American white oak barrel. And that char from the barrel is what gives whiskey bourbon or blue popcorn bourbon specifically, that beautiful brown color. So just from a, a glance, the blue popcorn is absolutely no different visually than a standard bourbon offering. But huh. the, the nose, the blue popcorn, it's cliche to say, but it has these wonderful movie theater uh, notes. It's almost like caramel corn, deep buttery notes. It's viscous, it's thick, it's mouth coating. And it's just this wonderful, wonderful experience that that's like no other whiskey. And so, you know, I, I will be very upfront though, that there is, it's still very much whiskey, just like in, in wine, how a varietal of grape affects the flavor of the final product, the variety of corn affects the flavor of the final product. So if you're a new, new wine drinker and you were to sip on a Cabernet versus sip on a Merlot, you probably wouldn't be able to recognize the big differences, the nuances from one to the next. But if you were a seasoned wine drinker, you would nose it and immediately know there was something different. You could probably identify the region. You might even be able to identify the vintage. That's how we're trying to focus our production on whiskey, uh, to be able to, to really showcase how those varieties of corn create something unique, 
create noticeable nuances, but at the same time, they still very much are bourbon whiskey to the core. That's uh, definitely uh, illustrative, um, to say the least, of, of what we could expect from uh, some of your offerings at Whiskey Acres. What else stands out as far as your product range is concerned? So what's a lot of fun for us, just to, to, as a macro perspective on the distillery, is that we've been in production for about six years. And in those six years, we've never sold a drop of whiskey that we didn't make. And that's a distinction that's not very common in, in the distilling industry. You know, as I mentioned earlier, getting into distilling is very capital intensive. Mm-hmm. You make something today, you're, you're at best about three years away from being able to have, have a marketable product. It's a long time to, yep. to sit and wait. Uh, we were able to do that because we didn't quit our day jobs. We continued running the farm. We continued running the seed business. As I mentioned before, my wife works full time. <laughs> you know, it truly takes a family to be able to, to make that work. And so for us, we made the decision to continue working and focusing on their other businesses and other jobs so that we could put whiskey away. And then when we, we came to the market, it was sort of coming to the market in full force with our own product from the beginning. So that, that's one thing that really differentiates our entire portfolio. Um, now, with that said, uh, actually in two weeks, two weekends, we were releasing a bottled in bond bourbon that's five years old. It will be the oldest bottled in bond bourbon in the state of Illinois since Prohibition. Wow. Um, and I, Binnie's is a, a big retail partner that we have here in the state of Illinois. And, and our, our four-year version of it, they reviewed it and said something along the lines of uh, setting a new standard for craft whiskey. Mm-hmm. We're really proud wow. of that. You um, should be. Our, our rye whiskey is, is very, very unique in that, again, we, we actually went to Canada, uh, worked with a farmer friend who lives on the Minnesota-Canadian border, to, to be exact, and, and identified a very specific variety of rye seed that we then had brought back down for us to grow, and we've been growing our own rye seed for about six years now. What's unique about that is is basically in the entire United States, rye is not grown as for, for grain. Rye is grown as a cover crop. And mm. so it's tilled back into the soil for nutrient management and erosion prevention. With Because of that, there's there's very little R&D done to, to get rye to the grain stage. Uh, in Canada, however, there's there's a ton of R&D and you can open up a catalog and you can, you can find out agronomic characteristics about a particular variety of rye. We found one that was agronomically sound to grow here in, in DeKalb. And the, the biggest thing about that is it has a very strong stem and grows much shorter. Our, um, our climate and our dense nutrient-rich soils really cause that rye to be, be too happy. And so if, if we were to, to use a domestic rye seed, it would grow too tall, it would fall over and would become mm-hmm. unharvestable. This particular one is, is very consistently harvestable. And the bonus is it come that when you distill it, it comes with this wonderful vanilla forward nose we use corn as a secondary ingredient, so we get these butterscotch ingre- uh, notes and, and, and flavors from, from the corn. And and most rye is kind of known as being spicy um, right. and having this kind of black peppery bite at the end. Uh, this has a much more soft like white pepper finish uh, that, that just, again, kind of created a, a new... Um, a new flavor profile for a rye whiskey. You know, the, the people who love bourbon tend to love this rye uh, because it's, you know, it's a little bit more approachable. It's a little softer, a little sweeter, and, and, and just a lot of fun to create something new. Well, you have a lot of options for people to, to, to taste, whether, you know, they, they're able to pick them up at a uh, retail 
partner, or um, I would be remiss not to ask you, uh, as we come to the, the end of our time together, about uh, the visitor center that you have at Whiskey Acres. Now, I know that we're dealing in corona times, um, so things are a little bit different, but, um, you know, visitor centers and, and tasting rooms and these sort of things are, are such a critical component to uh, consumers being able to really fully experience, uh, whether it's, you know, your the the, the spirit that they're drinking in this case, but you also have that, you know, farm experience. So give us a little bit of a tour um, in the few minutes we have left of what someone could expect if they came out to the visitor center at Whiskey Acres, um, you know, in, in more normal times. Sure. So I often refer to Whiskey Acres as the three P's. It's people, it's a place, and it's a product. And the visitor centers where you can kind of experience all, all three of those. So uh, it's a it's a 4,000 square foot visitor center. It's a post and beam building. It's, you know, think like a very traditional Amish style. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, structurally speaking, there's there's not a nail holding it together. Um, and, and it's built sort of as a nod to our original tasting room, which was built using the original timber from the family uh, dairy barn. Oh, wow. And, and so we, we utilize that space, obviously, to, to share a cocktail. And it's the beginning stages for where we, we give our tours. Um, but it's really a place for people to come and, quite honestly, have a drink in the middle of the cornfield and see where the product is being grown, hear the story about what goes into the, the product. Um, you know, we, we always have, you know, we've got this wonderful team. We distill seven days a week, so it's very easy to, to see the process going on. One of the owners is often there, so you can meet the people. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we truly utilize that space as a place to tell our seed to spirit story. And if you come, you know, pretty much any time between June and October, our tours start at the edge of the cornfield where we've often planted different varieties of yellow dent corn and sweet corn and blue popcorn and maybe Oaxacan green. So we can use that as a place to showcase to our friends that all corn is not created equal to really show why it's very easy to conceive that, that yellow corn is going to make a different, different distillate flavor than green corn. And at the same time to show that all yellow corn is not created equal. There's literally millions of varieties of yellow dent corn out there that, that, uh, our options to grow and at 50 miles an hour from the highway don't look any different from each other. But when you're standing in the middle of them at the edge of a, a showcase plot, it's really easy to understand that, that it's not all created equal. And you can really begin to appreciate the challenges that farmers have in, in making planting decisions and all the other agronomic activities that need to go on to really take into account, you know, most importantly, sustainability and, and being environmental stewards, but then profitability and and just being able to make sure your farm and your family is there to survive for the next year. And, and so we, we a visit to Whiskey Acres truly begins on the farm. And then then we, we take you through the rest of that seed to spirit story and, and show um, how that, that kernel of corn turns into to ground grain that turns into a mash that turns into fermentation that turns into a distillate that goes into a barrel that goes into a bottle and we finish with a sip. So it's, it's quite the fun place to be. Wow. Well, Nick Nagley from Whiskey Acres, about 50 miles outside of Chicago, Illinois. Thank you for taking me and our listeners on Eat Your Heartland out through this virtual audio journey from seed to spirit. Thanks for, for joining us again. My pleasure. Stick around for more Eat Your Heartland out after these messages. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our series on global food trade. 
We've covered sugar and spice. Next up, bites. Iran has been subjected to the far and away the most severe, stringent, painful sanctions regime uh, that has been inflicted on a country in peacetime ever. Servers would come around with little carts or trays carrying these things, and they would cry out what they were uh, providing. So you get hog my so my young son, when he was three or four years old, referred to deem some places as screaming places. Tune in to Meet and Three, available wherever you get your podcasts. Our final guest this hour is Michael Garrett, owner of America Fifth Spirits in Lansing, Michigan. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I am really excited for you to tell um, our listeners a little bit about your story. You come from Lansing, Michigan, um, which is known to, to some as a, a beer town, uh, but you make spirits. How did you get involved in, in the spirit business in, in a beer town? Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. Um, so uh, when I was uh, growing up, my dad owned a uh, beer and wine wholesale business. So you know, I've always been involved in the industry, sort of on the, the periphery. Uh, he sold that business in, uh, you know, 2008, 2009. Um, so was kind of just on the lookout for a, uh, you know, retirement project, something he could get involved in. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw the craft beer movement uh, booming in Michigan and, and in Lansing. Uh, things were starting to move. So, uh, we just felt that there was an opportunity to bring, um, you know, some creativity, the same, the same sort of creativity to, uh, to Lansing in the, in the spirits, um, segment. And, um, so he had, uh, a former employee that helped us put together a, a business plan. We, we kind of got things rolling in 2014. Um, I was also involved in the, uh, craft malt business for a while. Mm. So, uh, I was, I was talking to other distilleries and, and breweries as well trying to get like a feel for, you know, how things were going, what, what people were doing. And, and, you know, we just, uh, we just, uh, decided that it was a space that we wanted to be in and, and participate in and, and thought it was a really interesting industry. Uh, my brother's also involved, uh, as an investor. So, you know, it's very much a, a, a family business. So many of the folks that I've talked to in this process, whether it's beer or wine or cider, and in this case, you know, spirits, um, our family businesses and, and a labor of love and, and you know, really investing a lot of creative energy as well. Um, you know, what kind of creative philosophy do you bring to, to making your spirits in particular, um, you know, in the context of, you know, being in the Midwest? Yeah. So I, I'm a foodie at heart. Uh, I love the, um, you know, exploration of different flavors uh, finding different combinations. Um, I love to cook. Uh, so, you know, from, from my philosophy, it's, it's kind of like seeing what's out there in the world, bringing it home, uh, trying to, you know, uh, have those experiences. But then when, you know, when we look to make an offering into, into the, uh, you know, our products and, and what we do, I think it's important that, uh, that we bring the experience that we have here in the Midwest, um, you know, to that product so that then people from, you know, other areas and other parts of the world can experience what we have to offer. So, uh, you know, I think as a philosophy, I'm looking to, uh, you know, just bring some authenticity to it, 
Uh, I think that's what people in the craft space are looking for. They mm -hmm. want uh, they want something that is is an authentic flavor experience, and I think that's what separates us from uh, you know the sort of industrial scale products that are out there. Uh, we we try and we try and you know capture a bit of what we do best in in the Midwest and Michigan and specifically uh, in its agriculture. You know uh, our our variety of of grain and 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 fruit and and just you know, produce production, uh, is, is just second to none. And, and I think, um, you know, I think we try and, uh, bring that to our products and, and, and incorporate that as best we can to highlight that as a feature of, of, um, you know, of Michigan and what we do in here. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely, uh, want to get in the car and drive those, you know, three <laughs> hours or so from where I am in Northeast Ohio to, to taste that authenticity. But th that is so, that's a, that's a hard concept to get your head around, I guess. What does it mean to taste? How do you taste authenticity? You know, I mean, try to put that into some words if you can. Well, you know, we, we do everything by hand. So it's, it's really, it is a labor of love, like you said. Um, it's a, it's a crafted product that, uh, that is not just something that's going through, uh, you know, the industrial machine. It's, it's something that we are, uh, we're, we're working on continuously. Our, you know, our model is, is for continuous improvement. Um, so we're always looking for, uh, the best, um, process, the best product that we can create, uh, uh without, um, you know, necessarily these, uh, uh, large scale, uh, standards of, um, uniformity, I guess. So, so part of what we like about what we do is that it's, it's, you know, every batch is unique. Every, uh, every, you know, shipment of grain is different from the last, mm -hmm. uh, there, you know, there's, there's, some something to be said, I think, for the variety instead of just the uh, standardized um, commodity products that uh, that are out there. Uh, we we try and we try and you know make the best product uh, that we can with you know the best quality product ingredients that we have, and um, you know whether that's exactly the same batch to batch, that's not something as much as we're concerned about um, as it is just uh, uh, having, you know, I guess the, the spirit of ourselves and our spirits. I, I love I love that sentiment. Um, and, and you just you mentioned ingredients and there's no question that, you know, a finished product is only as, in, as good as the ingredients that are in it. Um, uh, and it sounds like you you get a lot from, uh, you know, the local community and region around you in Michigan. How do you source your ingredients? How do you how do you identify those partners um, and, and the type of ingredients you want to incorporate um, into your finished product? Yeah. So as, you know, as things progressed, um, you know, we were reaching out to local farms, uh, getting advice from other distillers, other brewers, as far as like where, um, you know, to source our best, uh, uh, quality grain, things like that. Um, you know, as we grew, uh, people came to us. Uh, so we've, we've done things, um, like, uh, sourced, uh, it's, it's called Wheeler Rye for our rye whiskey. Uh, from a local farm that's that's not even 30 miles from our distillery, uh, Moore Seed Farm. The Wheeler Rye is, an, is a, a grain that's exclusive to uh, uh, production in Michigan, and has been developed by this farm over you know 20 years or more. So 
things like that are just uh, what we're really interested in and fascinated by. Uh, we've also worked with MSU, uh, our local university, as far as their agricultural extension. They um, they partnered us up with uh, producers of what's called Spartan malt. So so there's Spartan barley, which is a uh, barley variety that was grown here in the early 30s. And, uh, you know, before Prohibition, it was becoming very, very popular as far as, you know, a, a barley to use in beer and distillation. Uh, in fact, there were, you know, thousands of, of growers across the state growing it. Uh, but, you know, with Prohibition, it almost entirely uh, disappeared. And so MSU worked on bringing that back. We worked with a local maltster uh, to malt it. And, you know, we produced uh, what we think is a really unique and interesting product in our Spartan whiskey. So it, you know, that's what kind of ties us to uh, the, the local community. And, and, you know, we're just trying to bring that, uh, uh, that co collaborative cooperation uh, to, to what we do. And I'm assuming that Spartan is because Michigan State is the Spartans, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I figured as much. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the products you make um, and the flavors that, that you incorporate. You've talked kind of about, you know, the, the actual grains that you use and, and that sort of thing. But um, I know Michigan has a lot to offer when it comes to, to fruits. Um, and I'm wondering if you incorporate any of those fruit flavors uh, in into um, into your finished product. Yeah. So in our um, cocktails, especially, uh, we're very interested in bringing um, you know like uh, the different uh, fruit components to uh, to what we do in our bar. We have a full cocktail menu that uh, the bartenders get really creative with adding you know, either locally grown fruits or fruit juices or concentrates or things like that, that, um, you know, are just, uh, really bring the flavors of Michigan specifically like cherries and apples are very big here. Right. Um, so those are, uh, that's, uh, uh, something that we, we do a lot in that, uh, regard as far as like our spirits go. Um, right now, uh, we, we've, we've got, um, you know, we've done like a, uh, like a raspberry liqueur to bring local fruit in. Uh, but you know, a lot of what's interesting about our spirits is, um, you know, there's a, uh, we're in Michigan and Michigan is obviously known for its lakes, known for its water source. It's pure Michigan. Uh, the water that we use actually is a really interesting ingredient, I think. That's, that, I'm glad um, you brought that up. That's, yeah. that's a, I think, a very overlooked. It is. I think that's, um, you know, it's something that, uh, that isn't talked about or thought about a lot, but it's really a key ingredient. I think it separates, um, you know, uh, our, our spirits to some degree, uh, just bringing that purity of, of, you know, Michigan's basically legendary water source, uh, to, uh, you know, to our flavor profile, uh, really, really adds a lot. I'm also very close to Lake Erie. I know that's, that's not, necessarily your your lake i mean lake michigan no. is, is <laughs> yeah. gorgeous lake michigan is gorgeous and i've had some time to to spend up up in like traverse city area and, and that sort of thing and no question that that our region in the, in the midwest really does boast some of the best fresh water uh, in the in the world um 
And since we're talking about, you know, visiting Michigan, yes. um, I uh, would love to to hear a little bit about what would somebody expect if they were to come visit you in a non-pandemic year? Um, <laughs> you, you know, because you mentioned the cocktail bar, for example. What what could somebody expect uh, if they came and visited uh, American Fifth Spirits? Yeah, so uh, we are we pride ourselves on our cocktails uh, locally. We have a, we actually, as a matter of fact, just won uh, Best Cocktails in Lansing uh, this year, which is uh, a fantastic accomplishment. Uh, and, and Congratulations. Kudos, thank you. Kudos to my bartenders for that. Uh, we have a, a very creative uh, menu, which I believe rivals um, any of the menus in the big cities. Uh, we draw inspiration from what's happening uh, around the world and and. Uh, you know, the craft cocktail movement has been just an amazing, uh, fascinating space of growth. Uh, people are getting super creative. Uh, we're doing interesting techniques, um, you know, things like smoking, uh, our, our Mm -hmm. drinks, um, you know, adding really, uh, interesting elements. Um, you know, we're talking about getting into some molecular biology or uh, molecular gastronomy. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you you know, things like that. Pretty, Uh, pretty serious. Yeah. Yeah. So we do a lot of, um, like, like really unique syrups, uh, um, you know, infusions. Give me an example. I'd like to hear some examples. Um, since we can't taste all this stuff on, on air, you know, uh, tell me about a syrup or, uh, um, you know, one of these concoctions. Yeah, so our lavender chill is made, for example, with a, with a lavender syrup that, uh, you know, we take fresh lavender flowers, um, you know, boil them with, uh, with you know, that famous Michigan water and, and a little bit of sugar, uh, create this amazingly floral, really interesting, complex uh, syrup that we then add to, uh, you know, a variety of drinks. And, uh, and it's, it's just, you know... Uh, we've made things like roasted chestnut syrups in the past. Wow. Um, uh, we just have a, a, a broad variety of, of um, you know, cocktails that uh, that we just get really creative with. We've we've done things like um, you know char orange peels and and layer that on top of drinks. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating to watch the bartenders at work. Part of that, you know, experience too, when you say, you know, what would you see if you visited us is not just about like sitting down and and enjoying this cocktail. It's also about the experience of being there, watching the bartenders, you know, Mm -hmm. in their creation of these cocktails. Uh, part of it is a little showmanship. So, uh, it's really a lot of fun. It's a great place to gather. We try and stay away from, um, you know, any kind of like, it's not a sports bar. It's not really a place to go to listen to loud music. Uh, it's more about the, uh, environment of a, of a kind of creating a, a, a gathering space for people to come, um, you know, have great conversation and, and, and really nice, uh, uh, close interactions uh, while experiencing, you know, the, the the true craft experience of of a great spirit and cocktail. Do do you offer food pairings as well? We do have uh, some food pairings. We we don't have a full kitchen, so we don't offer um, you know actual meals. But uh, we have a lot of uh, appetizer um, type of of, of uh, pairings with things like 
charcuterie plates, cheese plates. We get local cheeses and meats from uh, from different vendors. Uh, we have um, you know popcorn that we've sourced from a local popcorn place that does different interesting flavors of popcorns. So we nice. have right now. I know like a pumpkin spice popcorn. Uh, you know things like that that are just um, we think. Uh, are enough to to help balance out the you know the cocktail experience, but not you know we're not trying to be a restaurant, uh, we're not trying to be a place you know where people have a full meal, but they can just come, uh, spend a couple hours, have a bite um, along with their their drink, um, you know. So uh, we we do we do offer some food. Um, it's not our forte, but but it's it's available for sure. And do you do any events, um, again, in a, in a non-COVID year, um, you know, maybe coordinating with some of the other uh, local businesses? I don't know how many, uh, you know, distilleries or, or craft spirit uh, operations there are in Lansing. But, you know, I, I know that oftentimes in, in communities um, and, and folks that I've spoken to, you know, whether it's a wine trail or a cheese trail or a maple trail, um, you know, th- those sort of things that are, you know, kind of coordinated efforts in the community to bring tourism, uh, you know, into an area working with all of the different local businesses that have, have kind of, you know, similar but unique things to offer. Uh, are you involved with any of those kind of things in Lansing? Yeah, certainly pre-COVID, uh, you know, that was a lot easier to do. Um, sure. Uh, we, uh, we were uh, attending like various tasting events and festivals around the state, things that we could attend to show uh, people what Lansing has to offer. Um, as, as the capital, Lansing's traditionally been more of like a hub for business and government mm-hmm. with, you know, the auto manufacturers. Uh, recently there has been a boom in, um, the restaurant, uh, bar brewery distillery scene, um, that's made Lansing a, a real viable destination in its own right. Um, so we, we do try and add to the excitement to that. We've, um, you know, we've been involved in things like, you know, distillery trails, uh, brewery trails. Um, we, uh, you know, we bring, um, our craft cocktail menu to the downtown as a, as a, as a place for people to experience that. But then also we do have, uh, or at least, you know, before COVID, COVID we had, um, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, regular events with, you know, things like people doing, um, artwork while they have cocktails. We did a oh, lecture cool. series. Yeah. So we brought in, um, local professors from, from MSU to do, uh, lectures on interesting topics, uh, things like that. Recently, we did um, actually a, a bagel and Bloody Mary pairing with our local bagel shop right around the that corner. Sounds so, good to me. So yeah, <laughs> no, it's it, it's a lot of fun. We really enjoy those uh, those opportunities when they arise. Um, it, it's something that uh, that people are are super interested in right now. Uh, it usually uh, draws a big crowd, and uh, and it, they're they're really a lot of fun. Oh, that I I'm now thinking about bagels and Bloody Marys. <laughs> uh, thanks yeah. a lot. It's a great um, so combo. We, we've talked about all of the the stuff that you were doing prior to the pandemic. How have you adapted? Uh, you know, during uh, you know the the challenges that we've all faced, but certainly uh, in your industry, um, you know, any kind of service industry has has really faced a, a lot of uh, an uphill battle um, during uh, 2020. Um, what does that look like for you and, and, and kind of what's next on the horizon when all of this, uh, pandemic is, is behind us? I'll be the first to admit it's been hard. Uh, you know, we, our, our tasting room is, is our heart and soul of the business. And, um, you know, with us either being 
closed completely uh, for long stretches of a time or having uh, half capacity, uh, along with, you know, a general disinterest from the public for eating indoors. Uh, right. You know, we do live in Michigan. The weather is turning cold. Uh, <laughs> it's been harder and harder to attract people. But, um, you know, when it first happened and, and things first uh, started to flare up, we, uh, we like a lot of other uh, distilleries, switched gears to hand sanitizer. So we were producing that for, um, you know, most of March and April, I would say. Uh, we, we, you know, produced hundreds of gallons. We donated hundreds of bottles to local uh, first responders, doctor's offices, um, you know, uh, places that needed hospitals, places that needed it the most. Right. Um, so that kept us afloat for a while in the spring. Uh, at the same time, we were... Uh, building out our, our patio outside uh, as a, you know, sort of a, a way to still bring people to to our facility without, uh, uh, you know, having them be indoors at risk, at high risk of, you know, uh, catching catching COVID. So the outdoor space was was a big hit over the summer, spring and summer, and even in late, well into fall. We also produced our uh, t- sort of I guess we have these uh, pouches that are adult Capri Suns, really. So they're <laughs> they're mixed drinks in a pouch that uh, that are to go. Those have been a huge hit. Uh, so we really um, uh, well, if you if you need Capri to you yeah, know taste yeah. taste test yeah. the adult Capri Suns, just give yeah. a call. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so to go cocktails have been a very much a part of what we've been doing since COVID. Uh, people want uh, that experience, but you know without the risk of of being out in public, uh, they're coming, they're pick it up, you know, they bring, you know, a bunch of them to have, uh, at home or if they're having a picnic or something like that. Uh, so those have been very popular and, um, you know, it's just with the constant change of rules and regulations, we are, we are playing it by ear and look very much looking forward to things getting back to normal. I bet you, you and, and the rest of the world. And it yes. sounds like you've got a, a lot to offer when, when things go back to normal. And I think a, a lot of our listeners are going to want to come and, and visit Lansing and try your unique craft cocktails and, and this, um, you know, and taste that authenticity. I know I'm definitely uh, going to rev up my engine and, and jump on the, jump on the Ohio Turnpike and, and head that way, <laughs> head west. Yeah. So Michael, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story um, and the story of American Fifth Spirits. Well, thank you so much for having me, Capri. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.